All right, well, you guys welcome up Tyler, who will be giving the word for us. If you're wondering, we're not brothers that we know of. We should we maybe do a DNA a test. I think we look like. I, what do you guys think? What do you guys think? I think we do. He's got the mustache, but I, I think you guys don't think anymore. I saw him when he was preaching here last time. I looked at it. I was like, this looks like me even. So anyways. Now you know what you'd look like with a mustache. <laughs> Jess, make a mental note. Uh, thank you all for having me up here this morning. Um, I came up here, I commuted on my motorcycle. I ride most of the time, and I made great time on the way up here, um, which is better than the way that I normally come up with with my family and the kids. It can take like three hours to get up here with everybody in the van, but on the motorcycle, I made it in know, 25 minutes or something like that. Uh, made great time. Um, let me pray as well. We're a praying people. I'm going to pray too. God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, God. Use these words and use your word mostly, um, God, for the building up of your people, for the equipping of the saints, and your church and your body and flagstaff. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we made it. This is week nine, like Anthony said, of our Look through Nehemiah. You can go ahead and turn to chapter 13 if you're not already there. And while you're doing that, keep a finger in chapter 10 because we're going to be flipping back and forth quite a bit there. Last week, uh, Pastor Anthony gave three practical ways that the church is to be distinct. If you were here last week, you might remember the first one he called us to be set apart, avoiding that term he used last week, syncretism, meaning aligning of different faiths and one kind of being indistinguishable from the other. Second, he encouraged us to keep a weekly Sabbath. And three, he reminded us the importance of committing ourselves to corporate worship. And these points line up one for one to the commitments made by the people of Israel in Nehemiah 10. You might remember, you might remember reading that last week. And if chapters 10 through 12 is the parade with the people of God excited and they're making commitments and promises to God to be his holy, set-apart people, then, then chapter 13 is the rain on that parade. You might have heard that in the scripture reading today. There's some wild stuff that Nehemiah's up to, pulling out hair and things like that. Well, Nehemiah is going to have to come in and clean house again because the promises that the people made in chapter 10 are, are just broken here in, in chapter 13, like very broken. And there's this beautiful structure that the compiler of Nehemiah gives us in chapter 13 that we're just going to follow. And so we are going to read the whole chapter and kind of make some points along the way. Now, we're going to follow using the structure they give, and the clue to that is the times that it says, remember me, O God, or remember them, O God. And you heard two of them in the scripture reading today. Well, there's four in just this chapter. There's seven in the whole book, but, but the majority of them come right here. And so I need a favor from you right before we start. When we read through the larger sections, I want you to work to stay with me. Read along, stay engaged, follow along, because there's some really important stuff happening here. In fact, the end of the book of Nehemiah ends with this way that we're going to get into very specifically. He wants you to be thinking about certain things as you finish the book of Nehemiah, and I hope to show us all those before we go. So, what I'm going to do is read the promise that they made in chapter 10, 
Then we'll read the section in chapter 13 where they break that promise. Sound good? All right, so we're going to read chapter 10, verse 32. It should be on the screen as well. This is what the people say. We, the people, also take on ourselves the obligation, the promise, to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. And what continues in that section, you've already read all this. We're not going to read all of it, but it's more detail on exactly what that means. But most importantly, look at the exact wording at the end of verse 39. It says, we will not neglect the house of our God. Now, let's jump into the first large section of our text today. So, again, I hope you'll stay with me here, work to stay with me, and try to piece together the connections that he's making as as he wants you to see them. So we're going to read verses 1 through 14. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, a little bit of nepotism going on here, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I, that's Nehemiah, was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. If you remember chapter 2, when Nehemiah first takes leave of the king, he says, I'll be gone, but I'll come back. So this is him keeping his word. All right, and let's see. So he asked leave of the king, verse 7, and came to Jerusalem. I then discovered that Eliashib had done, the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw out all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And then I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shilamiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Pediah the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. And then he ends this section with, Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I've done for the house of my God and for his service. Okay, large, large chunk there. I hope you were following. But verses 1 through 3, they don't start out too bad. They hear the law. They recognize their error. And they seek to make things right. They read God's word. The actual verses they read were Deuteronomy 23, 3 through 4, which is kind of fascinating that we have those books that they were reading at the time. But it's all pretty much right here for you. It says not to allow Moabites or Ammonites into the temple. 
Just those two groups. And what do we see in verse 3? They separated who, if you, if you have that open? Not to allow Moabites or Ammonites, and so they separated everyone of foreign descent. And one of the other pastors, as we were studying this, pointed out that it seems like they may have taken the commandment of God farther than God even meant it. Right? If the bottle, if the bottle says take two ibuprofen, well, five must work better. That's how it works, right? Well, not necessarily. We're three verses in, church, and we're already off the rails here. And verse 2 mentions this guy, Balaam. That might ring a bell for you. Also connected to the Balaam story is that talking donkey thing. Is that ringing any more bells? Okay. Any non-Christians in the room are like, man, I knew this place was weird. We got talking donkeys now. Well, that's in Numbers 22. We certainly don't have time to get into that today. But of course, we can't miss, church, how verse 2 ends. How verse 2 ends. God turned the curse into what? A blessing. A blessing. Turned the curse into a blessing. By that, we mean in the story anyway, that God used Balaam, who was hired to curse God's people, and instead out of his mouth came a blessing. Our God often works like this, church. He takes difficult things and works them out somehow for good. And if he hasn't yet, he will. And we see this guy, Tobiah, who's an Ammonite, by the way, in the temple. Ammonite in the temple. We just read about that. He's not just in the temple, but he's been given a top floor office in a real up-and-coming neighborhood in Jerusalem. It's the hottest piece of real estate at the time. Not just Jerusalem adjacent, but holy of holies adjacent. This was a an important spot for him. And obviously all sorts of laws being broken here, but most significantly, the promise that they just made, we just read it in chapter 10, that they would not neglect the house of God. And what are they doing? They've cleaned out the place where the offerings go for this guy's office or home. Or, You know, my first job for a church was back in 2003 at a Calvary Chapel in Prescott. It's still there. I think it's doing well. I was on their janitor crew, which was just how they discipled people. It was like, come clean toilets and learn how to serve God. Um, but more than anything in that job, what I really wanted was an office. I, I had to have an office. Because I thought, that's, that's what you do to get some respect, to get some status. You've got to have an office. Which What janitor needs an office, by the way? I, my office is like cleaning toilets. I don't need to. Anyway. Well, nobody was trying to give me one. Problem number one. So one day I'm mopping this set of stairs, and I notice under the stairs there's this closet, this storage closet. It looks mostly empty. It's got some kid stuff in there, but surely me having an office is more important than keeping kid supplies in there. So I emptied that out. I found other places for that, and I moved in there. It was just big enough that I could fit a shelf, not a desk, a shelf and a chair, and I mean, it worked. If you hunched over a little bit, it worked. It worked. I did have to repeatedly remind people as they're going up the stairs, hey, could you make sure you step lightly? Some of us are trying to work in here. To which, of course, they just stomped louder on the stairs every time they went up and down it. So I can relate to Tobiah. He's, He's just trying to do his thing. But the problem is his thing goes against the clear laws of God. He's contributing to breaking God's law. So what does Nehemiah do when he comes back after a few years away? He cleans house. He takes all of Tobiah's thing and and tosses them to the curb, his lava lamp, 
his Nintendo Switch, his plant babies thrown out on the curb. And Nehemiah puts back what should have been in there all along. He calls the priests in from the fields. Do you notice that? So they're neglecting to the point where the priests can't provide for themselves or their families. So they go out and work in the fields. Nehemiah says, come on back, come on back. Cleanses them, cleanses the temple chambers again. This might be reminding you now of something that Jesus did involving a a cleansing of the temple. Well, hang on to that because we're going to come back to it. But two quick points of application here before we move on. First, you want to know why we should not neglect meeting together, should not neglect the church? Why should you commit to corporate worship every week? Well, because we are Israel. Without church leaders, we go astray as well. We need constant reminders, accountability, Occasionally, figured it would be someone to come in and clean house and call us back, set things right. Second, notice that the people that God used to bring reform in, in verse 13 were those who were considered reliable in the community. You might have noticed that word. I think that's another reason to commit to the local church is to be faithful in the little things and God will make you over greater things. And you say, well, I don't know if I want more responsibility. And that's fair. You can always say no, but I think what you'll find in the long run is that service to God's church, God's people, is on the long run a much bigger blessing than without. Because God will remember the good deeds that you've done for the house of God, for his service, like Nehemiah prays in verse 14. For the next broken vow, we need to to read the promise they made in 10, verse 31 this time. Here's the promise. This is what we read last week. If the people, and if the people of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath to sell, we, the people, will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. Any guesses on how this is going to go wrong here? Let's read verses 15 through 22. In those days, I, Nehemiah, saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath. Clue number one, something's going wrong here. And bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish, all kinds of goods, sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you're doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Verse 19, as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I, Nehemiah, commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be open until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. And then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice, outside the closed gates. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you 
From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. And he ends his section again. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. So the people broke their promise of keeping Sabbath rest. Clearly, they didn't just do it in a sort of underhanded way. They did it publicly, brazenly in the city's center. This city that was supposed to be different now looks like every other city, trading whenever and wherever, making profit king instead of God. Have you wondered as you read this why the people need to be forced to rest? Rest sounds like a good thing. Why don't the people want to do this? Why is it so important to God that the people stop working a day a week? Well, maybe because like, like Anthony taught last week, it's about more than rest. This is going against the compulsion that we all share in our sin for more, do more, get more, have more. There's another word for that we could use, and that's slavery. Slavery to work and profit. It's no coincidence that in the Ten Commandments, one of which is keep the Sabbath day holy, it comes immediately after they're freed from slavery in Egypt. So we're not going to get into that much more here, but there's a connection to being freed from slavery and Sabbath practicing. So that's, that's all we're going to say on that, except to check in and see, since last week when Anthony talked about it, did you get a chance to try Sabbath? And if you did, awesome. I really, I hope it was joyful I hope it was deeply restful. I hope you got to practice that, that pray and play aspect of it. If you didn't or forgot or spaced it, that's okay. Keep at it. Find a practical step or two you can take this week and try again. And don't be a legalistic weirdo about it because you're just going to suck all the joy out of Sabbath, so don't do that. But like Anthony said, it's going to take work. It's going to take planning. Sometimes you got to put your phone in the drawer, so to speak, kind of closing the gates, locking them, doing what you got to do, whatever it takes. And just remember, if any of your neighbors try to show up when you're Sabbathing, they try to sell you some fish or something, you tell them, Pastor Anthony's going to come and lay hands on you if you do this again. And he'll follow through. Now, interestingly, in his Remember Me prayer, Nehemiah, this time, appeals to the greatness of God's steadfast love. And I just always want to take those opportunities to remind myself and you all that we serve a God who loves steadfastly. God's love for you, church, doesn't quit. It's one of his defining character traits. He is a God of steadfast love. I hope that's comforting. Even just in a 30-second encouragement there, we serve a God who remains faithful even when we are faithless. The third and final vow that the people break is in verses 23 through 29. And to read the promise that they made, we're going to read uh, 10 verse 30. This one's easy. It says, we, the people, will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Now, as we read this one, how they break that, notice not just the promise that's being broken by the people, but notice Nehemiah is getting increasingly frustrated here in dealing with the people's sin. So 23 through 29, let's read. 
In those days, I, Nehemiah, also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah. You could see how intermingled their cultures are becoming. That's, that's, that's not the, what they promised. They only spoke the language of each people. Verse 25, and I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and, yes, pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, Eliashib, got it, the high priest was, in, was the son of, son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. And then he closes this section. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Again, not only have they completely broken their promise to avoid syncretism, that word we were talking about so much last week, or you know, lining up too much with, this, with the predominant cultures around them, some of their kids, think about this, don't even speak the language of the Israelites. They only spoke Moabitian or, or Ammon English or something like that. I didn't look up the technical name, Okay. Tom Schrader, one of the founding pastors of Redemption Church, who passed away a year or so ago, one of his favorite sayings was, I've seen this movie before. I know how it ends. I think that's what Nehemiah is doing here by pointing out Solomon. We all know, right, how that ended. And the people would have been like, yeah, yeah, we, we know how that ended. The wisest, richest man who ever lived had everything, lost it all. It all started with him slowly aligning with the foreign gods of his many wives. You think you'll be different this time? Really? This is one of the lies we tell ourselves when we're tempted to sin. Church, I know what happened last time, but this time, it'll be different. And maybe it is briefly, momentarily, but until it's not. Now, Let's talk about Nehemiah's anger here. There's a progression in these three sections that we've read. First, he's angry. He says, I was very angry. I took all of Tobias' things, his stamp collection, his beta fish, and he just got, threw it all out to the curb. Second, he threatens to lay hands on people who are selling in Jerusalem on the Sabbath. And here, he's cursing them, hitting them, pulling out their hair for marrying foreign women and adopting their faith practices and culture instead of keeping theirs. Now, there was an idea to help explain the hair-pulling thing, because that seems like the, a pretty extreme reaction here. Uh, one commentary I found, I only found this in one commentary, so take it with a grain of salt, but um, it said that a beard that's partially pulled out was one of the marks of a slave to the surrounding cultures. And so what could be happening is Nehemiah is maybe making it really difficult for these men to go out and find foreign women. They're going to look at these men and go, 
uh, that's not quite marriage material. And so that's possible. But overall, here's what I, here's what I think is happening. I think you're supposed to get the sense that Nehemiah is losing his composure here, that what he's doing to reform the people, it's just not enough. It's not working. Now, hang on to that thought, too, because I think we're supposed to be there. I think we're supposed to be asking that question at this point. What is it going to take for the people to finally get it? What's it going to take? So Nehemiah goes on to end the book with these final two verses, 30 and 31. And these serve, as you'll see, to sum up the entire book of Nehemiah, not just this chapter. Let's read 30 and 31. Thus, I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. Now his prayer serves to sum up the entirety of his work with the Israelites. Remember me, my God, for my good. He cleansed the people from everything foreign. He did it. But I think we're supposed to be wondering, yeah, but how long did that work for? Did that really work? Or was it another temporary thing? I think we know the answer. I think it's clear that it doesn't work for very long. Next week, we're jumping back into the Gospel of John. And where are the people of Israel then? They're back in bed with a foreign nation. This time, it's Rome. Remember back when uh, Pastor Anthony kicked off this series in Nehemiah? He talked about that term, associative fears. You remember the example he gave was a cockroach? Every time he sees a cockroach, he, he screams or something like that. He screams and, and asks just for help. Well, I think it's only fitting that we end Nehemiah by talking about cockroaches too. Just a nice little cockroach bookend. When I lived in, in Los Angeles for a brief stint, we lived near Hollywood in an apartment in Glendale infested with roaches, like so bad. Basically, Anthony's perfect hellscape. That's where we lived. So bad that each night I went to bed and I sprayed around the outlets and the walls and everywhere. And I don't know if you heard me, each night each night, and we would still see them every day the next day. It was so bad, one example, just so you can see how bad it was, I was sitting on my couch, and one fell from somewhere up here, probably the ceiling, landed on my head, and fell down between my glasses and my eye, um, which was not cool. You shouldn't be laughing. It was deeply upsetting. What I needed was something else, right? If you know anything about pest control, why was that not enough? I was killing everyone I saw, I was spraying around my place. Why wasn't that working? Because there was more behind the walls that I couldn't get at. So I'm dealing with a symptom, but I really need to get at the whole family. You can't just deal with one roach at a time. You gotta deal with the whole thing, the whole apartment complex, really. What I needed was an Orkin man. That's right, Orkin man. The great thing about the Orkin man is that he doesn't ask me for my help. He doesn't say, hey, can you, can you give me a hand over here? In fact, it's better if I leave so he can do his thing because he's got what I really need to fix the problem to get at the ones behind the walls. One commentator says this at the end of Nehemiah. 
It should be up on the screen as well. We cannot avoid the sense that Nehemiah is trying to hold a sand sculpture together by tying rope around it. All in all, the end of Nehemiah does not leave us with much hope. There's no king. The temple is small. It's underwhelming. It's regularly neglected. The Sabbath is profaned. The law is broken again and again and again and again. And the people's attempt to offer God a renewed national covenant is met with silence from heaven. The question is, what is it going to take to hold the sand castle together? Is Nehemiah the guy? I don't think he's the guy. He's stomping roaches. He's got momentary success. But he can't seem to get at the ones behind the walls. Now, if these three promises that we talked about this morning are primarily what make the people of Israel holy, set apart from the nation around them, they're blowing it. They're not able to keep the Sabbath. They're not able to prevent their faith from being infiltrated and watered down by others. They're not able to keep the temple going. They need a new temple, one not built on sand, but on something more firm, a foundation. Behind the walls of the human heart, there's a problem. It's sin. And dealing with the outward failures only goes so far. And many of you have experienced that momentary success, right? You get one, you go, yes. And it happens again, it comes back. Back in John 2, 13, we talked about this, when Jesus comes in and he clears the temple in the Gospels, he gets confronted by that. The, le- the religious leaders are going, wait, 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 who gives you the authority to do all this? And he said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it in what? Three days. It took them half a century to build the temple that Jesus was in at the time. Three days. Clearly he was talking about something greater than the temple. The time of the temple as they knew it would end and a new time would come. Nehemiah needed Jesus. The people needed Jesus, and so do we. In fact, I would argue the entire point of Nehemiah points to this reality, the need for Jesus. Why else would the book end with the complete and utter failure of the people? If you end in chapter 12, you go, well, everything seems to be going really well. That's great. 13, you go, oh, boy, this is not looking good. Why else would that be there unless it's to point ahead past Nehemiah to the one vow keeper, to Jesus? Hebrews describes him like this. Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. To Jesus, who doesn't just want to come in and help me fix my life, but wants to be my life, every part of it, to miraculously give me a heart that wants to obey him. What a miracle. And the Bible talks about we see him now like in a mirror dimly, but one day we're going to see him face to face, having run the race to which he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. This means we won't do it perfectly either, We'll break our promises too, but our trail of broken promises only makes the promise keeper that much more precious to us. 
One day he'll return, he'll make all things new, he'll wipe away every tear, and with it the effects of sin. These past nine weeks through Nehemiah have been a look at a carefully constructed narrative, a book seeking to give us not just a historical, but theological portrait of the people of God, seeking to be faithful. There's a quote from Eugene Peterson that's just been ringing in my ears for two weeks. He says, there are no successful churches. Think about that. There are no successful churches. He goes on to describe there are only communities of sinners who gather every week by the power of God's Spirit, seeking the face of God and striving towards faithfulness. That's what the church is. Now, this list I'm going to give you up on the screen, which I'll read, I don't expect all of these to hit home. That's the hard thing about lists. You, it, it kind of rapid fire comes at you. But these have been some of the main points of this series so far. And I hope you'll remember it, snag a picture of it, screenshot it later off of the, the YouTube channel, whatever. But strive for it, by God's grace, to be a distinctive people in an age of syncretism and compromise. A people who rest in the sovereignty of God in an age of fear and frenzy. A people of unity in an age of increasing fragmentation. A people of rich worship and praise in an age preoccupied with itself. A people more committed to the biblical story in an age dominated by the humanist story. A people who commit and align themselves with God's purpose revealed in that story in an age of distraction. A people who are committed to the protection and provision of the poor and marginalized. A people of prayerful dependence on God in an age of humanistic self-confidence. A people centered in Christ, his death and resurrection as the only hope for the renewal of humanity. And lastly, a people who take up their vocation to be that new humanity in all their lives for the sake of the world. Nehemiah and God's people couldn't do it. Neither can we without Jesus. They needed a savior and we have one. Let's pray. God, as we consider that list and we consider all the things that we've seen from this book of Nehemiah, I feel convicted, Lord. I, I feel like all the ways that I fall short of that, I just need to beg for your forgiveness, God. My heart needs reform. I need you to come in, God, and clean house. Set things right again in me. This is why we gather every week, to remember, to repent. God, forgive me, forgive us for the times that we've not been your people. Renew in us, God, a steadfast heart that would seek to love you and to obey you. And God, thank you for the book of Nehemiah, for the way that it points us past this ancient story and into a new story, it points us ahead to you, Jesus. So we pray, God, that you would come in, take up residence in us, take away everything that would not be from you, more of you, God, in us, and less of me. In Jesus' name, amen.